And so I think presidents, sometimes we don't like to hear what we don't want to hear. And so you surround yourself with yes people, what I call yes people. My people, you know, sometimes I get mad because they're not afraid <laughs> to tell me that I'm wrong. <laughs> but but, uh, but uh, for the most part, they're not afraid to say, I disagree with you. And I, and I think that's a healthy situation for a president to give that license, that, that freedom to your staff to disagree with you and, and, and you either laugh about it or, you know, you, you get over it after you disagree. Hello, and welcome to Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Dr. Melissa Morris Olson. Higher education is undergoing a transformation which we have not seen in our lifetime. Prior to the pandemic, higher education was already experiencing disruption, which has only accelerated in this current moment. Nearly all colleges and universities are scrambling to redefine their futures, and for many, their very survival is now in question. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with leading edge thinkers whose expertise and experience are at the forefront of this transformation. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, and other professionals who are experimenting with new approaches and ways of thinking about higher education. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share this with your friends and colleagues so they can join the conversation too. Ingenious You is a production of Chelip, the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. To learn more about Chelip, visit our website at baypath.edu forward slash Chelip. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ingenious You. I'm very pleased to have as my guest today, Dr. Elsa Nunez, who currently serves as president of Eastern Connecticut State University. On May 18, 2006, Dr. Nunes was unanimously elected by the Board of Trustees of the Connecticut State University System as the sixth president of Eastern Connecticut State University and as the first Latina president of a Connecticut State University. Under her leadership, Eastern Connecticut State has received several major national recognitions, including being ranked the top public regional university in New England in the most recent U.S. News and World Reports 2021 Best College Ratings. Eastern has also been awarded green campus status by the Princeton Review 10 years in a row. Uh, during her administration, Dr. Nunes has forged closer ties with the local and statewide communities. I have to say, if you reside in the Hartford area, you see her on TV a lot um, <laughs> with, with the advertisements that have been done for her local community. They're absolutely wonderful. Um, prior to joining Eastern Connecticut, she served as Vice Chancellor for Academic and Student Affairs at the University of Maine System, as well as Provost and VP for Academic Affairs at Leslie. 
Prior to that, she was a university dean for academic affairs and vice chancellor for student affairs at the City University of New York. She's been an associate dean of faculty. She has been a tenured faculty member. She's a published author and on and on. I could literally go on and on in terms of her background, but I will be including the full bio in the show notes so that our listeners can um, see all of the all of the things that she's been um, a- able to do over the course of her career. So, Dr. Nunes, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Melissa. There's a correlation between the length of the bio and age, so I was hoping you'd stop very soon. <laughs> <laughs> that's I think that's a good thing, though, as we will see in uh, what I know you're going to share with us in terms of some wonderful wonderful conversation here. I like to start out these interviews by asking our guests to describe their career journey. And I had the privilege over the weekend to read your most recent book, published in 2014, entitled Hanging Out and Hanging On from the Projects to the Campus. For our listeners who may not have read the book, it begins with your personal journey, which is an inspiring story, to say the least. Could you tell us something about this journey and how it led to the role you now hold as president of a significant public university. Thank you, Melissa, for this opportunity. Well, you know, like many of the listeners, I come from a modest, modest background, and uh, I have memories of, uh, and it's in the book, of uh, being in Puerto Rico, where I was born, uh, and going to my grandmother's house. And in those days, there weren't projects or low-income housing of any sort. And Puerto Ricans who were very poor developed a system in which they would go to El Fanguito, Fanguito spelled F-A-G-A-N-I-T-O. And they, they, that means mud flats. And so they, what they did was uh, on the ocean, actually on the bay side, they would take pieces of wood and they would put um, uh, a st- sticks into the water, into the mud, and then build a platform on top of that. And that was extended for miles into the bay. And then they would build little huts on the slats. And my grandmother lived in one of those little huts. And so I would run on the slats and look down into the water and hope I wouldn't fall through as a little girl. And I didn't realize how poor my grandmother was. This is my mother's, my maternal grandmother. And she raised chickens. So she had chickens and she had eggs. And the best meal Melissa ever got was um, she would make us chicken soup with a little bit of rice and of course a fresh chicken. And I didn't realize until one day I saw her pulling the neck of a chicken (laughs) where chicken soup came from. And then um, with the egg whites, she would make meringue and with sugar. And so I would have a big bowl of soup and meringue and it was probably one of the best dinners I I would remember having uh, with my family. And, uh, I didn't realize that of course it was, uh, 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 a real problem for sanitation because there was no, of course, no public, uh, place. It was just, uh, the little hut and people lived in a, in a compromised situation in terms of health and safety. And, but in that little hut, they had mats and people slept in mats and then they would roll the mats up in the morning. Like many, people in other countries. And so that was what I remember clearly about some of the best times of my life as a little girl, because my grandmother was so kind and so loving. 
And somehow what I took away from that, Melissa, was that she had nothing, but she had everything. You know, she had nothing, nothing material, but she she had chickens and she had eggs and she she made a feast. And, and I always thought, you know what? That's really a lesson that she's given me that sometimes you will have nothing in many metaphorically speaking also, and that you can you can build you can build something out of your situation. You can pull out the good and and realize uh, that there's a world, you know, uh, beyond that, that world that you have that you can create on your own. And so my father was in the American army and he migrated to this country for a better opportunity with the children and my mother. And, and that was the beginning. And then I, of course, went to uh, school here as a child. And um, I had learned a little bit of English because as I said, my father was in the American army, but for the most part, I couldn't speak English. So what an inspiring foundation upon which to build a career. And it, it really helps to connect the dots when you then look at the things that you've accomplished uh, and where your heart seems to be drawn uh, in terms of your own career trajectory. So for example, in the preface of the book that you wrote, you describe the book as the story of the dual college enrollment program at Eastern Connecticut which is an initiative that you championed early in your tenure. I'm curious, why did you choose to focus your attention of all the things you could have focused on, um, on this as one of your earliest priorities? It's so interesting. I think that's such a, an important question that you're asking that I've reflected on. I've been president now 14 years and it all started the day that they announced that I was going to be president uh, at, of Eastern, and there was a small group. It wasn't the inauguration. It was a pre, uh, an event that, that uh, preceded the inauguration. And people from the community came, but not many. It was mostly internal uh, people from the university, from Eastern, and from the system office. And at that event, there was a woman. I'll never forget, I was standing uh, in the library building, and a woman who uh, um, looked Hispanic, was standing in the uh, doorway. And as I passed by, she touched my hand. And Melissa, she said, God sent you here. And I said, oh, God, you know, I just, <laughs> I didn't like, I, I, I was polite, but I kept walking. I didn't really want to engage that conversation, not at that moment in time. And so uh, you fast forward and uh, UConn invited me to be a speaker in my first year. Uh, and in that speech, I decided that I wasn't going to give a rah-rah speech, you know, that I was going to give a substantive speech. And I said, I'm going to talk about uh, this community, the Willimantic community and the Wyndham community. And I knew that there were a lot of Hispanics there, but I didn't really know um, the history of how those Hispanics got to to Connecticut and to Willimantic and the Wyndham area. So I researched it, did I would say a good six months, eight months of research and then wrote the speech. What I learned in doing that research, Melissa, was that over time, since the late part of the 19th century to uh, the 1960s, uh, Puerto Ricans had migrated to Connecticut to work in the um, uh, tobacco fields in the uh, factories uh, that were, you know, in the Hartford and Connecticut areas, all the way into Massachusetts. And the chicken factory that existed in Willimantic, and that chicken factory was the largest chicken factory in the world. And the mm -hmm. thread company was the largest thread company in the world. 
And so those factories attracted a lot of people. And what had happened in Willimantic was what happens with a lot of minority communities, with the Irish and the Italian, one person gets a job and then they send a note to their family or their friends, come, I can get you, you know, you can work here. So over time, the Hispanics that were getting going to Willimantic uh, to work, either the chicken factory, the tobacco fields, or the, uh, the thread factory were from a small town. And that town in Puerto Rico was called St. Sebastian, San Sebastian. That's where I was born oh. and raised. And that's where all my family is from, this little mountain town. It's not, a, it's not on the water. And so that woman, it, 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 when I realized that, I said, oh, my God, I understand what she meant, that I would end up not, I never knew that that I, the president of Eastern would be from the little town where so many people had migrated to that area. So that really inspired me to really get connected with the community in Connecticut, all of the community, uh, not just the Hispanic community. And But with that, it was a connection to the Hispanic community. And then the last point I would make on this uh, uh, part of your question was that my um, I my children were getting, I have children, they were getting older and, uh, you know, they were adults. And I started to reflect on my legacy at Eastern and my legacy as a mother. And right. I, and I said, you know what, I am going to strive to be number one in U.S. News and World Report. And 14 years later, this is our second or third year we've accomplished that. Um, I, we are, we're, we've got some of the best metrics. We have more minority faculty and staff than any other institution in Connecticut, really qualified, high-level people, you know, on and on and on. But I said, but you know, when they when they they bury when my children bury me, they're not going to put they're going to put beloved mother, beloved sister, beloved wife, beloved daughter, but they're not going to put beloved president. Mm. And so I said, I need to do something that's much deeper based on why I'm here, why there must be a reason why I'm here. That woman was right. Mm. Uh, and I said, I need to help children in this community. And so then that began my, my visit to a public high school in Hartford. And I told no one I was going, Melissa, because I thought no, no one would, you know, would understand. And I didn't want to get permission from a superintendent or principal because the bureaucracy takes over and people would have discouraged me. And I met with a guidance counselor. He didn't know why the heck I was there. <laughs> he was so nervous, Melissa. He said, what do you want, basically? My boss doesn't even know you're here. And I, I just want to ask you one question. If you had the chance, could you pick out smart kids that go to the school that haven't had a break in life? Mm. And he said, of course, we're, the school is full of them. So kids who, you know, young women who've been molested, kids who live seven, you know, 16 people in an apartment, kids who see shootings on a street corner and see blood on the, you know, on the concrete, uh, people who, you know, don't have enough to eat at night, big fear. Kids who, it's very hard to get an A, Melissa, when you're from that kind of environment. And I knew down deep inside that UConn, Yale, Harvard were all, you know, after the kids who got A's, but what happened to the kids who got C's? They right. were getting in college, right? And so yeah. I said, that would be my focus that the high school counselors would identify for me young people who have the intellectual capacity, but not the opportunity to show what they really, you know, their intellectual strengths. Boy, thank heavens for your um, 
<laughs> your courage and tenacity. You know, I, I, the synchronicity, uh, the synchronicities in your story are really quite stunning. Can you talk a little bit more about the dual college enrollment program? Um, what, in particular, what you've learned, what you and your colleagues at Eastern have learned from your experience with this, particularly what worked and what, what didn't work so well? Yeah, the, the, you know, on paper, the, these young people would never have gotten into Eastern. They really, they, they didn't have the grades. Eastern's very competitive to get in. We're the only public liberal arts college. We're all residential. Um, uh, our price point's about $26,000 all in. That's room, board, and, and tuition. So it's competitive, and it's a great, it's a great value for families in Connecticut. So I had to be very careful that the admissions process didn't violate um, what the faculty had set up as standards. And I was very careful to be respectful. I didn't want to bring in kids through a side door that were qualified and then they would be marginalized in the institution. So what I did was first, as I mentioned in, uh, a few moments ago, I did speak to the guidance counselor and ask them if they would identify the, the young people with the most potential but not having had the breaks in life that my children had. And they said that they could do that. Once they, they, they were identified, they were interviewed. We wanted to see how much grit they had, how much motivation, because that's a real factor in success. Um, and then uh, the third component was that we wanted them to uh, agree that they would apply to the community college, Quinnebog Valley Community College, which is very near Eastern. It's a block away, basically two blocks away because they have, they're in Danielson, Connecticut, but they also had a site, have a site in, in Will, Willimantic. And so they were accepted to Quinnebog Community College, not Eastern, but they lived in the, our dorms. And I had to get donors to give me money, private money to pay for them to live in the dorms because I couldn't use taxpayer money because they weren't students at Eastern. So I got a woman from Hartford, she was wonderful, and she paid for the first group of 20 students to live in the dorms. Mm -hmm. Those students then got up in the morning, took a shower. They were at Eastern. They walked down to the community college and took their their first semester courses there. When they passed those courses, then they transferred to Eastern and they were eligible then because they had shown that they had the intellectual capacity. They had gotten good grades. They couldn't get lower than a B in those courses. And if they couldn't do it in one semester, we gave them a second semester to try. But after two semesters. So what happened was they were admitted then to Eastern and they were so proud. They were so proud to be at Eastern. They loved Quinnebot. The faculty there was a terrific, is a terrific faculty. And so they had a good first experience. They came to Eastern and for the most part, we had about an 80% graduation rate with that cohort. And they went on to graduate school. They went on to work. And so it was really looking at um, recruitment and admissions in a different way, providing an opportunity for them to succeed by going to the community college, but living on Eastern's campus. The key to the success of the program was that I had to get them out of Hartford. They had mm -hmm. to be on campus where somebody would say, you're smart, you're capable, look at how well you did. They weren't getting that kind of reinforcement. And so my faculty, the Quinnebach faculty, my staff, everybody saw their potential. And once you're told over and over, you have the potential, you begin to believe it, Melissa. And mm -hmm. these people flourished. Mm. Well, and as you know, there's been a great deal of talk in recent years about the need to close the achievement gap 
more, more globally to find more effective ways like this to increase college attendance and graduation rates of uh, under the underserved population. So from your perspective, are there other things that you think colleges and universities need to be doing to have an impact, um, whether it's to do a dual enrollment program or other, other strategies? Um, you know, and if you were speaking to other college presidents, what would you tell them? that they need to be paying attention to, to these students yeah. um, if they're going to be successful. I always tell people that there has always been a, a, an attainment gap in this country. We mm. just didn't see it. When the Irish and the Italians migrated to this country, they didn't go to school. They went to work because there were, you know, there was the garment district. There were the automotive factories. There were, there were manufacturing jobs. And so they didn't go to school. If they had gone to school, we would have recorded the achievement gap with other uh, uh, immigrant populations and other uh, populations of modest background. So once we passed the law in the early part of the 20th century that it was required for you to go to high school, we began to document the, the process to document that everybody was going to high school. So of course you would begin to see the achievement gap. So the achievement gap uh, has its basis for a segment of the population in language acquisition that uh, many uh, young people in school, English is not their first language like it wasn't for the Irish and the Italian. And so they 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 fall behind in reading skills and reading is the key to everything. Reading, and then of course you learn to write, but reading is really important. So, so early acquisition of English and the ability to read uh, is really critical. And that has to, of course, take place in elementary school. It's very hard to close the achievement gap when an adult can't read. It's very hard. Cognitively, you know, the brain has developed in different ways. So, so the efforts that, that college presidents can make to help um, elementary schools in particular and also high schools to develop the skill set in uh, reading, writing, and mathematics is really important. And one of the ways that we did it in um, uh, that we've done it at Eastern is that my math faculty will tell the high school math faculty what the expectations are in the math courses. And so that is very clear what the expectations are, what they are in the writing courses, what they are in the literature courses. And because we make those expectations very clear to the teachers in K through 12, then they begin to understand what, what they have to do in order to prepare the student for college. I once had a teacher tell me when I was in New York that the problem was that we were accepting the students with the gap. That if we didn't accept them with the gap, the students would then close the gap themselves in, mm -hmm. in, in, in high school. And, and so I always thought about that. I said the re part of the problem is we're not articulating to the students and to the teachers what we're expecting in college. All of us went to college, but you know, you kind of you forget or you're not tuned into the ways that make sense for teachers teaching a curriculum. So I would say to presidents, have good relationships with the K through 12 system. Make sure that your faculty is articulating, you know, the expectations you have for the students and report back. So we report back to the high school how their students did that came from their high school. So we'll say, you sent us 15 students uh, last year of the 15, 14 did very well, one did not. We don't name the people. And the high schools love that we're giving them feedback. Those are wonderful, wonderful strategies. And you know, they're, they're, not, they're not hard to do. <laughs> and, 
and and yet I'm not sure how many of us are doing that sort of thing. You know, there's there's still so much of this silo kind of mentality between the different levels of the educational system. So um, I, I really, uh, really resonate with what you're suggesting. What about mentoring? Did you do anything or have you done anything with the dual college? No. Enrollment? Mentoring is really important, and I'm not a big fan of mentoring in its yeah. in its in traditional state. But I'll tell you why I used it in the program, and then added a dimension that I thought was really important. To mentor someone, you, there's got to be a schedule behind it. So meeting face to face in the old days before the pandemic, you know, the student has to have time, you have to have time, you have to meet in a certain place, you have to that has to be institutionalized and you know and you have to routinize so that you both will go or if it's more than one student that you're mentoring and it gets overwhelming on either side and so i thought for the dual enrollment program if i tell these students they've got to meet now with another person on top of they got to go for tutoring they got to go for advisement they have to meet with their psychological counselor it's and they have to study so I decided that the best thing for them, since they were all from modest background, and they were not all minority students, people think that, but we have uh, some students who were from rural poor areas in Connecticut who are part of the dual enrollment program, and they have, they're have they just as poor as students from, from Hartford, and so, so it's nice to have that kind of diversity as well, class diversity. Um, and, and so one of the things that, that that we said to the students where you need a job on campus so you have a little bit of pocket money so that you can you know go to a movie buy an ice cream cone you know save it for books whatever but you need a job so they all worked on campus and their mentor was their boss uh-huh. so every day that they went to work they saw their mentor so the boss would say you know what you can't come to work 10 minutes late you know what? I don't like what you're wearing today. That's not a professional that you might wear that on a Saturday, you know, to go dancing, but you're not going to wear that to work. Or the the mentor might say, how are you doing in class? And the student might say, I'm worried about math or I'm not doing so well. And then the mentor would, of course. But because there was a routine, it was in a schedule, they saw their mentor every week and they didn't have to add another appointment. So I, I am a fan of mentoring. But I do think that the scheduling of mentorship uh, relationships really has to be part of the program. Well, and you're bringing up another another wonderful strategy that any of us could actually avail ourselves of because we all have students working on our campuses. And so to think about the student work opportunity a little bit differently um, to create that mentoring and, uh, you know, shepherding of our students, uh, regardless of where they're coming from. I, that's a wonderful, wonderful idea. It really worked, Melissa. It really worked. Yeah. And it, it makes sense. It makes sense as to why it would. If we learned anything from the rapid deep dive into online learning that happened this spring at our college campuses around the world, it is this. High-quality, effective remote learning requires a lot more than just the technology. If you want to create rich and robust remote learning experiences, it starts with understanding how people learn and how to design learning environments and how best to use technological innovation to bring about these kinds of experiences. 
Institutions of all types and sizes are now looking for digital learning professionals who know how to use learning and curricular design principles, technological tools and innovation, and analytics to create robust and rich learning experiences for their students. This is the future of learning, and the future is now. The Bay Path University newly launched Master of Science in Learning Design and Technology was created for just this purpose. The degree prepares professionals for what Inside Higher Ed recently called Higher Ed's hottest career field. In addition to learning about all of the breakthroughs in this new teaching and learning field, you will also gain hands-on experience designing innovative learning projects for real-time college classes and faculty. Upon graduation, you'll be highly marketable and ready to join this exciting new career field. The program is entirely online and can be completed in less than two years. For more information, visit the Bay Path University website at baypath.edu LDT. Applications are now being accepted for the October start. If you want to design the future of learning, take the next step. Visit our website today, baypath.edu LDT. talk a little bit about your tenure as president. You mentioned you've been president for 14 years, right? Yes. <laughs> now, as you know, college presidencies seem to be getting increasingly shorter. Um, some have suggested that the presidency is an almost impossible job today, and that was prior to the pandemic with all <laughs> the disruption and the, the uncertainty. Now, your tenure is almost three times the national average um, for all college presidents. So, what insights or guidance might you share for other leaders, especially those that are just coming into the role now for the first time? Yeah, I think, you know, I I, I thought, you know, I'd probably be fired in two or three years. And, and, uh, and uh, here I am with a long tenure. As you said, this was a rough summer with the pandemic, I must say. I never expected that. But I think that the... Um, one of the advantages that I had was that I was a faculty member. And so when I came to Eastern and my faculty started to complain to Kvetch, as I say, about the 4-4 teaching load, about having to do research for tenure and promotion, about, you know, just all the obligations that they had, I just looked at them and I agreed with them. So they thought, I think they thought that I was going to argue, well, it's not that bad or, you know, how are we going and I said, I, that's what I did. I said, I got tenured and promoted under these same conditions. So I fully understand I raised children. It was hard. And I remember being tired and, and, and working so hard. So my first relationship with the faculty was a positive one. Mm -hmm. It wasn't one of my disagreeing with them over the workload. I just couldn't change it. It was, it, it was the way it was because that's part of the contract. But I, I, I fully understood. And I think empathy, understanding, showing that is really important as a president, that when people complain, kvetch, that you listen and you, you try to get to the bottom of the message and not you can't always fix it. But just the fact that you acknowledge that 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 they're you know, that they're facing challenges and demands that that you understand, I think, is really, really important. 
And I will tell you that that um, in in many cases, as a president, sometimes you have to hear what you don't want to hear. And um, when I I surrounded myself with very intelligent people, Melissa, people who compliment me. So in my early 40s, I sat down, I remember one day, and listed all my strengths and then listed what I thought were weaknesses. And, and to this day, I think about my weaknesses when I'm hiring. And so I try to compliment my team with people that are very different from me in terms of the way they have the way they analyze a problem, the way they their their worldview, the, their experiences. Many things go into into the way that they think, and their cognitive skills have been developed. And so, what I have learned as a president is when I have a problem, and it just happened this week, I have a problem, and I took it to three people on the team. One person said, "Well, just." don't do it. Another person was more neutral. And the other person said, why shouldn't you do it? And, and I smiled and I said, this is wonderful because I got three different opinions mm -hmm. and none of them, you know, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but it was good that I could hear from people who were thinking and their analytical skills were very different from mine and they came to different conclusions. And so I think presidents sometimes we don't like to hear what we don't want to hear. And so you surround yourself with yes people, what I call yes people. My people, you know, sometimes I get mad because they're not afraid <laughs> to tell me that I'm wrong. <laughs> but but, uh, but uh, for the most part, they're not afraid to say, I disagree with you. And I, and I think that's a healthy situation for a president to give that license, that, that freedom to your staff to disagree with you and 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 you either laugh about it or, you know, you, you get over it after you disagree. Yeah, you know, and it does take a certain amount of uh, self-confidence uh, and security in yourself, I think, to be able to be able to do that. Um, are you familiar with the work of Kathy Davidson? A little bit, yes. Yeah, and she talks a lot about this. Um, she's at, uh, I think she's at NYU now. At NYU now, yeah. Yeah, and she talks about how the best decisions are those that come from teams of people that are very diverse. Um, and that it's in the melding of all of those different perspectives that you also get the most innovative solutions. So um you're you're doing exactly what she would she would advise, and it's obviously working for yeah. you. What I will say, however, though, at the end of the day, you're the president. You have to make the decision. So you could take in all the information you want, but you're gonna you're gonna get fired if it goes wrong. So you have to you have to be willing to to take in the information, but then decide and it, it you know what you want to do and what the move is going to be based on the best intelligence you have at that moment in time. It, it, you can't just freeze because you're getting for diverse opinions. Sure, but don't you think the fact that you took the time to get those opinions also buys you some um, uh, buys you something when you do make that decision? You know, whatever it is, because people, as you say, people feel as if you at least took the time to listen to them. Yeah, for the listeners, I'm going to give just one anecdote. I think it's important. I was in the middle of a real crisis when I terminated someone who was in sports and. They, they, there were many supporters at the university and also in the media that the press was supporting this person. So uh, it was very controversial, Melissa, and it was getting hotter by the day, by the minute, by the day, by the hour, you know. And then finally, um, 
uh, I, so I, I brought the team in and the team told me uh, uh, what they thought. And I was ready to make a move. I was really not clear headed because I was angry. I got angry because the media was saying things that weren't true. Internally, the person was telling another narrative that wasn't true. And so I, the, I, I was focusing on that. And, and someone on the team said, Elsa, Elsa, you, that's, you can't do that. And I said, I looked at them and I said, why? And they told me why. And I think sometimes in a crisis like that, you really do need people to say to you, you can't do that because. And that person said it politely, but with a lot of, you know, feeling. And, and I said, okay. And I listened and I didn't do what I was going to do. So I think sometimes you really do need people around you that can save you from yourself, basically. Mm-hmm. Boy, we all do, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, there's been a great deal of speculation, as you know, lately about how COVID-19 and the racial unrest now seen across the globe will eventually transform higher ed, is already transforming higher ed. So as a woman of color who serves in a significant higher ed leadership role, I think you bring a uniquely valuable perspective to what's happening right now. From your vantage point, what do college leaders most need to be paying attention to on their campuses in response to the racial unrest and systemic injustice that we see playing out across the country. Yeah, well, what what I think, I think this is America. I love this country so much. And my father, who was the best American in the world, would throw you out of our house if you said any bad thing about the United States. Mm. He was the best immigrant in the world. And he, he just loved this guy. Now, I was raised that way, that this is a terrific, wonderful country, and I am so proud to be an American. And one of the hallmarks of being in this country is freedom of speech and freedom to assemble and freedom to express your opinion. So you have the right to, to, to say things uh, that I disagree with and that I don't like. And that is really hard for us as Americans. We want to, and for young people in particular right now, uh, this idea of protecting them from things that other people might say that they don't want to hear is something that I'm grappling with. And uh, so I believe that my students have a right to assemble. They have a right to express their opinion as long as it's safe and orderly. Uh, and uh, they have the right to hear diverse people speak on campus. And so my responsibility as president is to protect your right to say what I don't want to hear. And so, uh, and, and so I- implementing that as a president, living by that principle is not easy because there's always controversy around what people say or, you know, what they, what, what, what they want to hear. And so making sure right now I've had students who have had two town meetings at Eastern to talk about how they want to improve Eastern. And uh, we've had two two-hour meetings. We're going to have a third one in a few weeks. And it's wonderful. They express, they set the agenda for the town meetings. They tell me what they think is wrong with Eastern. I listen. I come back to them with a proposal uh, or a response to one of their, uh, you know, what, one of their criticisms. And it's a give and take. And they're learning about bureaucracy. They're learning, you know, Eastern is part of a public system. It's not so easy for me to change things overnight. And some things I don't want to change because they fully understand the ramifications of changing it. 
So it's learning for them, learning for me, and making Eastern better. So I think that the um, the, the unrest that's happening in this country, and I don't mean the uh, uh, where people are 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 are. are destroying property there I draw the line uh, you know no you're not going to destroy buildings at Eastern and you're not going to destroy property in Willimantic that I won't support but you do have the right to dissent and and to have another opinion so we're encouraging people to think critically it's a liberal arts college you have this great first-class education in a wonderful institution we encourage you to think we encourage you to criticize because that's how this country you know, gets better, that we have to learn how to work together and disagree and keep going. Um, and that's been really important. On the pandemic side, I had a really tough summer. Uh, before before um, the 4th of July, my faculty and I totally disagreed on what the fall semester was going to look like. It was tense. It was probably the most tense it's been in my presidency. I was very, very concerned. Um, I took uh, July 4th weekend to think about how I could break the impasse with my faculty and how I could come to the table in a reasonable way with them. And so on Monday morning after the 4th of July weekend, I wrote an email to the faculty saying that I was going to adopt one of their suggestions at a union meeting. They said that I had given them the dictum that I wanted 60% of the courses face-to-face -face and 40 online because we're residential liberal arts and they they didn't want that. And they had suggested to me that, Melissa, that that be an aspirational goal, not a dictum. And I said, in that email, I said, I accept that it's aspirational. I'm, I'm removing that I'm demanding it, but I'm saying that it is aspirational. But let me tell you why it's important. And I outlined to the faculty and the staff why I thought those numbers really important for the future of Eastern. And they went to work, the chairs of the departments, the deans, the faculty, and they produced the schedule for the fall. And guess what it was? It was 65% face-to-face and 35% online. So it ended up that as president, I was able to um, concede. And, and that's important as a president for you to say, I don't want an impasse. I don't want to be at odds with my faculty. I want to work this through. And the minute I conceded, they went to work and because I gave a rationale. These are very intelligent people. Right. So once I gave the rationale, the reasons why I thought the numbers were important, everybody began to work together and we accomplished a lot. So today, if you're teaching philosophy 100 as a faculty member, you wear a mask, of course, and you come from a row office or your car, and you're going to go into a room, and you have 20 students in that course because Eastern, because we're liberal arts, small, you know, uh, residential. We're, we're medium sized, actually, not small. And residential, the the courses, most of our courses are under 20, maximum 20. And so you would go into the classroom, and there would be 10 of the 20, Melissa, on Monday in the class. They would be six feet apart. They would all be wearing masks. They're all wearing masks. You have a mask on and the room is wired. We did this six years ago with a technology called lecture capture. So that has a microphone capacity where you could be anywhere in the room with a mask far away from the students and the students can hear you. And the other 10 students are in the dormitories and they hear you simultaneously. So that's on Monday. And on Thursday, we flip it. Those 10 come 
come into the classroom and the 10 that were there on Monday then go into the dorms. And if you don't want to come to Eastern because you're afraid of your own health or your family's health, then you choose online courses from the 35% that are online. Not every course is online, but there are 35% of the courses online. So this model really taught me in the pandemic about compromise, about listening. So you say after 14 years, you know, you still learn. You still learn that the key to being an effective leader is to listen to the people, compromise, and work together. And so it's been a great learning experience, a miserable summer, but a wonderful learning experience. Wow, that's a great that's a great story, and I'm glad you shared that one. Um, you know, the what you're describing is you're using the hyperflex model that I, yes, I keep yes. reading about everywhere. And hybrid hyperflex. We had the technology in place, so we were very lucky. Yeah. So and so it sounds like things are going reasonably well on your yes. campus. Yes, we've had two two cases since it'll be a month next week that the students have been on campus that we've had two cases which of is, residential students, which is quite uh, significant compared to what uh, so many campuses are reporting these days. So mm -hmm. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna wish for you that that continues. Yeah, I think the one thing that I did that was at odds with public policy was that public policy at the state level and the system level said you need to wear a mask inside. But if you're outside six feet apart, you don't need to wear a mask. And I said, Melissa, that's way too complicated for an 18 year old. I wear my mask here, but then if I'm outside, I don't wear it because, and then I have to make sure I'm six feet. They don't walk six feet apart. So I came up with the, the university policy that you must wear your mask at all times unless you're in your room. And yesterday we had a session with Governor Lamont, he had a press conference and my students were there, I was there. And this, one of the students said that that was the best thing that I did was have one rule, easy to remember, easy to implement. You just wear it all the time. He, and he, and, and that's now they're self-regulating um, the students. You just wear it all the time and you don't have to think about it. I think that's why my rates are so low. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I saw that on the news, by the way. I saw the news conference. Oh, good. That was, that was good for you. So, um, I, you know, the, this next question, I think anybody listening to this is going to understand why you've been described by others as a transformational and a very positive leader. Um, what influences have shaped your development in this regard? And especially when things are tough, and you've described some, some you know, somewhat crisis moments in your, your tenure. Um, how do you personally find the courage to stay, to stay positive? Well, I always say that uh, I am anchored in a great family situation. I have a, a loving husband. I have children and everybody, you know, everybody's healthy at the moment and working and uh, a loving family. So my strength comes from um, from having a good home life. So in my moments of despair, I have people uh, my family, members of my family, I can talk to. I have good friends that I can talk to privately because I can't always talk to people at Eastern about what I'm feeling or thinking. And so I think part of, uh, of being an effective leader is having a safe place for yourself where you can feel that you can talk about things in an open way and be honest and direct with people who love you and who will tell you the truth. And so I think that that has really helped my leadership uh, uh, as a president that 
that in my moments, as I call them, of despair or in my moments of real doubt about myself, I'm able to turn to people who either agree or disagree, but but even if they 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 see that I am doing something that's maybe not the best path, they'll they'll gently tell me how to what they think, and then I'm able to 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 think more deeply about what I'm doing. And I think that that's really important for pre college presidents to have that because there will always be moments where you're going to doubt yourself if you're human. I mean, you 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 know you think I'm going to do this, and people who don't doubt themselves and think they're always right get into trouble. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. So you have your own kitchen cabinet. I've I've heard other presidents talk about the need to have their own kitchen cabinet outside of the institution. You know, made up of people that tell you the truth. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, wonderful, wonderful suggestion. So let let me end with the signature question that we ask of every guest, and the question is this: What do you see ahead for higher education that we all need to be paying more attention to? Um, and this this really gets at whether whether you have a vision as well um, for what higher ed needs to look like going forward. Um, so yeah. you know, most, most immediately, what needs to be on our radar now as you look to the future? Yeah, one of the things that, that uh, I will say about, about this country is we have the best higher education system in the world. I mean, your, your mother could clean toilets and you can go to Harvard. You know, I just think that that where does that happen, Melissa? Where does that happen? I mean, it's just if you're smart, you can get there. Now, we can argue that not everybody can get there for various reasons. And that's and I would agree with that to some point. But on the face of it, I think it's a, a it, based on merit, although there's been discussions of parents who have bought their way into other schools, putting all that aside, for the most part, it is uh, a meritocracy. Now, one of the things that I, I have seen is that over time is that the key to a great democracy is a middle class. And you and I have to protect the middle class. Without a middle class, the rich, just having rich and poor, I mean, it, it's just a recipe for revolution. You have to have a middle class where people can have a good, a good uh, uh, a place in a country where they can feed their family, you know, have a nice house or you know, dress okay, uh, go to a movie, you know, go to the beach, just a, a, a wonderful life as a middle-class American. The only way you can protect that is by educating the poor because the rich will always educate their children, but the poor can't. So access to a college education has to be number one. And what's happening in this country is that we, what is happening in the community colleges, I have colleagues in that I, that I have enormous respect at community colleges, but I think we have to really pay attention to what's going on in the community colleges. We dropped all the technical schools. Remember that movie? We just dropped all the technical schools because we said, well, that's not, we're not gonna do that anymore. And I'm not so sure we did a great thing for this country. There are a lot of people, my plumber probably makes more than some faculty members, uh, you know, and, and electricians. Those are professions that are really important for young people. And so, we have to really think the, about the role of the community college and ask the question, why is it that the graduation rates are so low? Because they're the key to the middle class. And so I think in, in this country, my vision would be that we really fix this at the community college 
people go, they graduate, and then they can do whatever, either they get a degree that they can do something with the two-year degree, or they get a technical background, they don't need a degree, they get a certificate, they can get a job. But right now, all of that is not as effective as it should be. Mm, boy, and that, that takes us back full circle to where we started with, with your original vision um, for the dual enrollment program. And so, Elsa, I am so grateful for your time. Uh, you are such a passionate advocate uh, for a higher education. And this has just been an inspiring, inspiring conversation. Well, thank you, Melissa, and thank you for all you're doing with your students. I know higher ed uh, is a promising career for many of them, and it's wonderful that you're giving them the opportunity to, to really think deeply about how they can contribute to higher education. I'm Melissa Morse Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson, Marcy Moore, and Amanda Emmett. As a closing note, this is our last full episode of season one. We're now beginning to plan for season two of Ingenious You. If there was someone you would like to hear from in season two, or if you have suggestions for upcoming episodes, please reach out. We would love to incorporate your ideas into our next season of conversation. Be sure to join us for our upcoming free Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Ed webinar series. Our first webinar, The Human Side of Innovation, Finding Meaning and Joy in Work and Life, is scheduled for October 29th at noon Eastern Time. Our presenter is the internationally renowned speaker and author, Elaine Dundon. Also, subscribe now so that you don't miss out on the release of our Ingenious You minis. These are short clips highlighting the most compelling and insightful moments from our season one conversations. That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. Be well and stay strong. There has never been a better time to study higher education. And the Bay Path University Master's Degree Program in Higher Education Administration has been designed with this in mind. Through the highly practical and relevant coursework, you will learn to identify emerging trends and apply cutting-edge practices to address the challenges faced by higher education professionals today. Classes start every eight weeks and are taught entirely online by supportive professionals who have deep knowledge and skill in the practice of higher education. The Bay Path program offers unique concentrations in enrollment management, institutional advancement, and online teaching and program administration, in addition to a joint entry track with the doctorate in higher ed leadership and organizational studies for highly qualified applicants. Whether you are already a higher education professional or are looking to switch professions, the Masters in Higher Ed Administration from Bay Path University will expand your career opportunities and provide you with mentoring and lifelong networks of like-minded professionals. Take the next step by visiting our website at baypath.edu slash higheredadmin. The need for qualified administrators in higher education has never been greater. Again, that's baypath.edu 
slash higher ed admin.